Uh, good morning and uh, welcome to Missio Day Church. If you're visiting with us, we're very glad to have you here. And I'm also just looking around and seeing folks that I haven't seen here in person for a while. And it's just a real treat to uh, have folks with us for the first time in a while. Um, it's been a crazy year. My name is Ken Jones. I'm one of the pastor elders here. And today we're going to be going through Acts 18, um, verses 18 through chapter 19, verse 7. Uh, if you're new here, we've been working our way through the book of Acts since uh, sometime about three years ago, I think. No, just kidding. Since last fall, and uh, it's been an exciting journey. As we read through our story in the book of Acts today, <clears throat> we're going to touch on three points, three main points. <clears throat> Actually, one main point, a couple of uh, lesser points. The main point is that baptism Everybody's watching the TV, so I might as well, too. So there's something exciting going on. <laughs> I love this. Um, the main point is that baptism in the Holy Spirit <clears throat> is of the essence of becoming and remaining and being a Christian. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and in the Holy Spirit is of the essence of becoming and being a Christian. We're also going to see two other points that we'll only touch on lightly. One is the continued significance of the ministry of John the Baptist. Sorry about that. My ear is cartilage challenged. I, I envy you people who can wear these masks and they don't make your ears flop out. The continued significance of the ministry of John the Baptist in the early church and to the apostles um, and his baptism of repentance. And another thing that we'll see illustrated briefly is how the gospel is spread by disciples making disciples making disciples. That's illustrated in the story. When we started out in the book of Acts, Ethan talked to us about the coming of the Holy Spirit being the hinge of history. Israel didn't get a new God, but they got a brand new way of relating to him that thousands of years of you know hundreds of years of experience relating to god in a certain way and now there's something brand new on the deal and, and much of the story in the book of acts is about making that shift and the tension between those two ways of, of encountering him the story illustrates today <clears throat> that this hinge again and as huge as it was the baptism of john the baptism of repentance was not the whole gospel. Repentance isn't the whole gospel. Forgiveness of sins is not the whole gospel. Going to heaven because my sins are washed away is not the whole gospel. Those are all super important things to us as believers, but they're not the whole deal. Remember in chapter three of John, Jesus said to Nicodemus, nobody can get into the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. And in chapter four, he told the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, that true worshipers will no longer worship in Jerusalem or on a mountain, but in spirit and truth. So this was a, a big change for folks. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this passage and we see once again, this radical shift that you were unveiling in the earth, the coming of the spirit, your spirit, the spirit of your son into your people. Lord, help us to um, read the story, help us to think about it in the lives of the people it was happening to, and Lord, help us to figure out what it means for us today. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. 
we ask you to enliven us in a fresh way this morning by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we're going to, again, we're in uh, at the end of Acts 18. Uh, I divided the text into four sections uh, for brevity. I am actually not going to read the first section, which is chapter 18, 18, verse 18 through 23. I'm just going to recap it for us. Uh, after about a year and a half of ministry in Corinth, Paul, it's, it's time for Paul's new, next assignment. So he and Priscilla and Aquila leave Corinth, which is in Greece, if you remember from last week. Um, take a short trip across the Aegean, they sail to Ephesus, which is on the west coast of Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey. Uh, he stopped in to preach at a synagogue there briefly as he is his deal. Surprisingly, they asked him to stay. He said, no, I'm, I'll be back when I can, but the Lord isn't willing right now. Lord willing, I will be back. And, and he takes off. In part two, um, I will, which is, Still, the part of the text that I'm not reading, I will just note that Paul takes a very long trip. He wears out a lot of shoe leather, and uh, he's gone for several months. And while he's gone, there's a lot of activity going on in Ephesus. Lots of activity on Paul's trip, too, but we won't be addressing that today. Picking up uh, in verse 24 of chapter 18, we're going to read. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, which is in Egypt on the north coast of Africa, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Now, that's the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament didn't exist. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross over to Achaia, which is, again, modern Greece, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures, again, the Old Testament scriptures, that Jesus was the Christ. It's a couple of things to point out briefly in that section. Apparently, in spite of being able to teach accurately the things of Jesus, Apollos did not know about the baptism of Jesus, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. He did not know, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus had become a life-giving spirit. Another thing we observe is an example of the disciples making disciples making disciples. So Priscilla and Aquila, we heard last week or the week before, had met Paul in Corinth. And uh, they had learned the Lord from Paul. They came over to Ephesus with Paul. Paul leaves. It's Priscilla and Aquila who explained to Apollos the, the way of God more accurately. And then Apollos goes to Greece, and he greatly helped the believers there. There's this continuity of people, disciples making disciples making disciples that speaks to us about our role as believers, all of us. Well, that brings us to part four. Um, we're going to start, this is where we'll spend most of our time. We're in at the top of chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. We'll read a little bit more. So several months after leaving Ephesus, Paul returns, and we'll pick up in, in verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country. That's he's just traveling back down from Asia Minor. Uh, I'm sorry, from uh Yes, he's in Asia Minor, but he, and he comes to Ephesus. And there he found 
some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized, that's in water, into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on him, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 of them in all. So when Paul found these disciples in Ephesus, we note in verse two that he discerned they were believers. Then something was missing. Something about them was missing. It reminds me, Linda tells this story. My wife, Linda, most of you know Linda, but if you don't, Linda's my wife and I'm blessed for it. She, uh, she grew up in a church her whole life and she came to Christ when she was 10. She heard a clear message that Jesus had died for her sins. And she, the way she says it, it was like the Lord tapped her on the shoulder and said, you're mine. And she went forward at an altar call. Not long after that, she was baptized in water in the name of Jesus, 10 years old. She gave her life to Jesus and has belonged to him ever since. But she heard nothing at that time about the Holy Spirit or the indwelling Christ. She had a hunger for something, though, that caused her to go forward from time to time in these rededication things because she wanted more. It's a hunger planted and nourished in her by the Holy Spirit. When she was 18 years old and away at college, she heard a speaker say that Jesus wanted to have a personal relationship with her. She heard that Jesus actually wanted to be enthroned in her heart, and she prayed a simple prayer asking Jesus to be the Lord of her life and sitting on the throne of her life. She'll tell you everything changed. It was a life-changing experience for her that's never left her. From then on, she knew that God was present with her. By the way, she never spoke in tongues. She never has. She said she looked into it from time to time, but it never happened. But those of you who know her know she's been a prophet for as long, well, I, as, long as I've known her. Most importantly, ever since she's, she's cultivated a, a, a regular interactive relationship with the Lord, ever since, that's what's marked Linda. I tell that story not to make a particular doctrinal point or theological point. It's an example of the work of the Spirit in one life, Linda's life. It's quite clear that Linda's been a Christian since she was the age of 10, but something happened at the age of 18 that wasn't just getting new information. Her life was altered. It was the beginning of a new life in the spirit. Well, let's get back to our story in Acts 19. On hearing that the men had never even heard of the Holy Spirit, Paul said, John baptized with the baptizer of repentance. And John told people to believe in Jesus who would come after him. As soon as they heard this, the men were baptized again in water in the name of Jesus. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now that story hopefully will remind you of a story we read a few weeks ago in Acts 8. When Philip went to Samaria, he preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. He preached the gospel of the name of Jesus in Samaria. And it tells us in that text that the Samaritans had received the word of God. They had believed and they were baptized in water in the name of Jesus. But something was apparently lacking. 
So the church in Jerusalem sent Peter and John down. They prayed that the Samaritan believers might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on them. He laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. It also reminds us of a story in Acts 10. That was the when uh, Cornelius is down in Caesarea, and there's that whole story about the visions that, that, Paul, that Peter has. At the end of that story, Peter is there speaking to them. And this is what it says in verse 48, 44 and 48. While Peter was still speaking to them about Jesus, still speaking to Cornelius and his household, the Holy Spirit fell on them who were listening. There wasn't, there wasn't time for an altar call. He didn't pray a special prayer. He didn't even lay hands on them. They just suddenly, the Holy Spirit fell on them and they began speaking in tongues and exalting God. It was after that, that Peter said, hey, if they've received the Holy Spirit, let's baptize them too. So he had them baptized in water in the name of Jesus. I love the fact that those two stories don't follow the same sort of like linear check the box program. Uh, It reminds me of part of my own story. My own story has some similarities to Linda's, but it's also markedly different. I also grew up in a church. Uh, Being brought up in a Presbyterian church, I was baptized at birth. Over the years, I heard lots of stories about Jesus. Uh, I, don't, I don't recall hearing anything about sin particularly because in that church, man is basically good. So that, that was my, the church that I was in. I'm going to say the Presbyterian church, the one I was in. I don't remember being called to repentance or called to anything in particular. Um, and it was really easy for me to just wander away by the time I was 12, 13 years old. I didn't even refer to myself as a Christian. Uh, in my early teens. I wasn't antagonistic toward the faith. It just wasn't very relevant. I was confident that there was a God just because my own perspective on nature and biology led me to believe that that couldn't have come from out of nowhere. But beyond that, I just really wasn't interested. When I was 17, uh, the summer before my senior year in high school, this faithful God came after me and came after me hard. And in the space of one evening, He invaded my life with the spirit and truth. I understood that Jesus died for my sins on a cross, which was amazing because I really didn't think of myself as being a bad person. And I was utterly overwhelmed by his presence within me. As As Peter writes in one of his letters, I was filled with a joy that I could not express. It was overflowing and just full of glory. I could not and did not fully understand that joy, but I certainly felt it. And my life was completely changed forever. It was two weeks later that I finally prayed a simple prayer of faith for the first time. I gave myself as best I could to the Lord and his leading. It was sometime during the next few months that I first prayed in tongues. And it wasn't until about three and a half years later that I got baptized in water in the name of Jesus. Again, I'm not telling you that story to make a theological point, It's just part of my story. But when I take that story and Linda's story, they illustrate two points that show up in the story we just looked at in Acts. The first is that the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of persons is not performed in some linear, check-the-box fashion. He doesn't always work in the same way. The second is that his work does something in a person that enlivens the person. He's alive, and he makes alive those he inhabits. This is, the New Testament is shot through with this idea 
that the coming of the Holy Spirit, even in the Gospels, when Jesus speaks about the Spirit coming, you get to the book of Acts, you read the letters of Paul, um, they're shot through this idea that the Spirit indwells and enlivens those, makes us alive where we were dead. Well, these stories in Acts highlight certain immediate results of being filled with or receiving the Spirit. Uh, We see this idea of speaking in tongues and prophesying show up repeatedly. But it's the long-term effects that matter the most. The new covenant, the new covenant, which is different than the old one, this new covenant, which has to do with the Spirit coming, operates on the principle of life in the Spirit. The old one operated on the principle of law. Paul addresses the difference in Romans 8. And I wish I had more time to sort of flesh this out, but I'll just read you this. In Romans 8 at the beginning, he says, the spirit of life is to empower us so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the spirit. That's huge. That's a testimony to the fact that the law hasn't gone away, but he's telling us, that the way that the law actually gets fulfilled, that, that, that we actually get to walk in it, is by walking according to the Spirit. In other words, the indwelling Spirit empowers us to live lives that are pleasing to God. In verse 6, he adds, the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace. It's not drudgery. It's not works. It's not condemnation. It's not guilt. The, li- the mindset in the spirit is life and it's peace. Well, what does a spirit-filled and spirit-led life look like? In his letter to the churches, we just sang this a minute ago. Um, in his letter to the churches in the region of Galatia, Paul wrote, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Sometimes I wonder if if non-charismatics love this list because it can be embraced as a to-do list. Nine steps to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Just work on these real hard. Or this one, you know, you seem to be a little lacking on that one. Why don't you work on that one for a while, kind of a deal. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, if you see a lack of love, if you see a lack of self-control, those are great ways to stop and say, hmm, If I'm led by the Spirit, this might be changing and to be bringing that to the Lord. But to just gut it out and say, if I can just do these things, I'm a good Christian, is not the message that Paul is writing. It's the fruit. We tend, it's easy. You've heard this, I'm sure, many times before. It's easy to forget that fruit is not coaxed. It simply grows on a branch that's connected to the vine. That's how fruit happens. When Paul addresses spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians, um, he's got three chapters, 12 through 14 on that. The primary thrust of the message is that spiritual gifts should be desired and that all gifts are primarily for the common good. But what does this have to say to us? This is, this is the part of the sermon where I'm, I'm like, as I, I wrestle with this, Because I do not want to put something on you that you need to go try to do. (laughs) It's because that's not the point. Um, But when you look at your life, what do you see? If Paul showed up 
would he ask us if we'd received the Holy Spirit when we believed? What would he think of us as a body of believers if you were with us today? A.W. Tozer was a prophet in the United States in the mid-20th century, and he loved to talk and write about this subject, the, the presence of God, the presence of the Spirit in the life of the church. Here's a few of his gems. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. This is another one. It is not intellectual knowledge about God that quenches man's ancient heart thirst, but the very person and presence of God himself. These come to us through Christian doctrine, but they are more than doctrine. Christian truth is designed to lead us to God, not to serve as a substitute. And the last, the last one I'll read is, the world is perishing for lack of the knowledge of God, and the church is famishing for want of his presence. Look, as a church, we believe that we are indwelt by the Spirit at the same moment that we believe and trust in Jesus and receive him as our Savior and our Lord. And if you're such a person, it's okay to ask, do you experience the indwelling Spirit in any particular way? Do you sense his presence leading you at, at least some of the time? Do you enjoy just sitting in his presence and worshiping him? Do you, do you find in you an earnest desire for spiritual gifts? If you don't, again, I'm not trying to lay some trip on you, bad you. I'm saying this is an invitation to ask, you know, the Lord's, um, the Lord Jesus says in Luke to his disciples, how much more, if, if, you, if, you're, if you can give good gifts to your kids, you, don't, you have no idea how much more the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Nikki Gumbel writes about the fact that in the Old Testament, Israel, for those of you who are familiar with the story, Israel was given Canaan. They came out of Egypt finally. They were given ownership of the land, but they had to take possession of it little by little. And that in Christ, we have forgiveness of sin, but we have to take possession of that gift in some practical ways. We have to actively turn away from feelings of guilt and shame for sins that we have brought to the Lord Jesus at the foot of the cross. Likewise, we've been given the Holy Spirit to lead us as well as comfort us. We have to actively take possession of that gift as well. Again, I go back to Linda's thought, by regular cultivation of a living relationship with Jesus. That's a quiet time relationship. It's also a walking around talking to him every day relationship. It looks like a lot of different things because it's 24-7. It's, it, it, you know, it's something that's available to us in every aspect of our life, not just a particular time of day or a particular time of week. For those of you who don't sense the indwelling Lord's presence or you don't feel led, it's a good it's, it's okay to say, I wonder why. You know, is it, is it fear of the activity of the Holy Spirit? Have you been taught something along the way that causes you to be anxious about that? Um, have you ever asked for more of that? This is Tozer again. One of the most telling blows that the enemy ever struck at the life of the church was to create in it a fear of the Holy Spirit. 
does this kind of question make you feel judged or downcast, or maybe you've just given up on it? You've tried it before, and you know it's okay. I've, I'm, I'm kind of going. Or do you just is it does it discourage you? And if you, on the other hand, are one of those folks who feels led by the Spirit all the time, how do you know that it's Him and not just what feels right in your own eyes? That's a phrase from the Book of Judges, where people basically just kind of did what seemed best. Or looks good for food. That's out of Genesis. Do you test the spirits as John counsels us? And do you do that in the counsel of others? I'm sad to tell you that Linda and I have both known and counseled too many young people who are certain that the Lord has unilaterally led them into life choices that are categorically at odds with walking in the spirit. So there's this. There's all kinds of reasons to be afraid on either end of this thing. So get rid of the fear for starters. The Lord is good. He's bigger than all that kind of stuff. There are errors to be made by following the leading and there are errors to be made by saying, "Uh, that's just too complicated and frightening. Let's just kind of try to stick to our knitting. So what do we do? How do we pray? Is this purely a personal pursuit? Is it a corporate pursuit? Should we practice more praying and laying on of hands by the elders? Uh, My simple answer to those and any other questions that are like that is, yes, if it will help you find a greater experience of life and peace in the spirit. Yes, if it will help you find greater freedom from guilt or fear or condemnation or anything else that's associated with the accusations of the enemy. Yes, if it will bring you experiences of life in Christ that you have not yet had. Yes, if it empowers you to be on mission with Jesus, serving others with joy. I've said this often when I teach about many aspects of following Jesus. Try something new. Do it together. Be bold enough to press into an experience of Christ that you have read in a book or that you have seen in others that you trust and know, but don't see in your own life. I am positive that by the time I go to be with the Lord, I will have experienced only a fraction of all that is available to his people on this earth. I'm certain of it. And I know there are things that people have experienced of the Lord and in the Lord that I have not experienced. I can either get bummed out about that, or I can be complacent about it, or I can let it inspire me in an earnest desire for more. Not condemnation, not discouragement, but, but anticipation, asking the Lord. Now, again, I am not exhorting anybody to a new level of frantic activity. The Lord's provision to you and to his church is always enough. The Lord's provision to you and his church is always enough, but there's always also more of it than we have yet laid hold of. If you don't believe me, go read Paul's prayers for the church in Ephesus and for us in in Ephesians 1 and 3. He starts out Ephesians saying, you have been blessed with all the spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenly realms. And then he prays, I hope you can experience this more than you are right now. That's, That's a paraphrase, obviously wonderful prayers. If you want more of whatever it would mean for you and for Missio Dei Church to be filled or moved or led by the Spirit, 
to be aware of his constant presence. I encourage you to be asking God for it, for yourself and for this body of believers. You have a loving father in God of the universe, and you have a compassionate Lord and Savior in Christ Jesus. Trust in the Lord. Come to him honestly. Come with your fears, your hurts, your judgments, even your anger, but come. We're going to transition now to the table. If there are folks who can help hand out the elements, that would be great. As we come to the table each week, we're specifically encouraged by the Lord Jesus to remember him until he comes again as we take the bread and the cup. As we take a minute this morning to quietly talk to the Lord individually, please spend your time bringing anything to him that you like. In fact, ask him to bring to mind those things that you need to talk to him about. That's a really good prayer. Lord, how can I pray to you this morning? Especially if you need to confess or make right with him or anyone else things in your heart, bring those. But if nothing else is pressing on your mind and heart, I invite you this morning to ask the Lord about these things we've been talking about, to expand your understanding and experience of what it means to him to be living in you and what he desires that it would mean to you to have him living there on the throne of your heart. If you recognize a fear or a judgment or just a sense of apathy about it all, you might want to ask the Lord to create in you a clean heart, to renew a right spirit in you, to restore to you the joy of his salvation, to help you to begin to identify things that you have attached yourself to or become attached to you that cause you to just kind of keep the whole concept of the indwelling spirit at bay. So let's take a moment and talk quietly to the Lord. You'll take your cups. There are two parts to be open. You peel the little membrane off the top and there's a little piece of bread there. We're going to take these one at a time together. So if you'll take out the bread. I'm reading from Luke 22. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's drink the cup together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your full provision for us and your death, your resurrection, and your present life. Amen.